right, welcome back to Ranking 76, where we are ranking the most notorious and infamous Western figures in American history. I am Eric. And I'm Matt. And today, we are on episode two of three as we lead up on our march to the Alamo. We're talking about James Bowie. Bowie. It's James Bowie. I'm going to do that a lot today. I'm very sorry. Uh, James Bowie, who... I've already pointed out to Matt, I've pretty much built him out as the devil. So no bias being shown here. Eric has turned his red lights red to signify that this dude is not good. You do not mess with this man. Let's see if he lives up to hype, shall we? I need this beer. Let's get it started in here. Now say that, but in demon. Let's get it started in here. That was a bit of The Undertaker. I like it. My wrestling fan just peaked a little bit. Okay. James Bowie. Bowie. Damn it. James Bowie. I'm going to say that a lot. People will get over it. Born in Logan County, Tennessee, Kentucky in March 10th, 1797. He is the ninth of ten children. His father is a Revolutionary War veteran, and his mother was the nurse that helped him back to health. They are a slave-owning family and own a 200-acre farm uh, and moved to Missouri when they were then settled into Spanish Louisiana. Not much is known about James in his younger life, nowhere near the amount we have for David. So James's story for us is going to start when he's 19. He and his brother, Rezin, volunteered to be for the Louisiana militia near the end of the War of 1812. In January 1815, the day they signed up, is literally the day Jackson um, and the militia won the Battle of New Orleans. So the boys don't actually see any fighting, but are paid for two two months and 21 days worth of service time, which is equal to $21.93. James leaves the militia to start his own life. He starts a small plantation and buys four slaves off of his father, similar to what other plantation owners. He does not actually have a lot of physical hard money but all of his wealth is in land um and in human labor he agrees to work the land uh, until he pays off the debt to his father james would spend his time hunting and fishing and exploring the bayous he had a fierce temper and gave zero f's when he was engaged he was described as quote fearlessness as much as the entire forgetfulness of his own safety in the grips of his own fury Texas and Louisiana share a border. James and his brother Rezin would be familiar with the politics and the going on in the area. Texas is already starting a reputation of being, quote, a lawless leaderless state of ferment. The Adams-Onis Treaty had been recently signed, and part of the treaty was said that Texas was not part of the Louisiana Purchase, thus making it firmly a territory of Mexico. James Long recruits 300 others, including James, to go with the goal of liberating Texas. Long declares a new government and starts enacting laws, which means nothing to the Mexican government. It also means nothing to the American government. It's an ultimately a failed experiment, but it's the first time James crosses the border and gains the reputation of being the very devil in a fight. And he actually becomes a favorite among the recruits. James will spend his entire life looking for a big score by any means possible. And he starts off in the worst possible way because he becomes a slave smuggler. 
slavery is an incredibly lucrative business. Initially, there's not many slaves in Louisiana, but there's a lot of land that needed to be worked. Someone just needed to get the slaves in the territory. James wanted to be one of those people. And I hate him. About a decade earlier, Congress actually abolished the slave trade in 1808. Slavery is obviously still will be allowed and legal in the, in the southern states up until the Civil War. But you couldn't bring in new slaves from outside the U.S. border. Smuggling slaves itself was a capital punishment. The slaves would either be sent back or auctioned off with money being sent into the federal treasury. Take a guess which method was a favorite. The money? Sure was. Bowie starts a, a partnership with a man named John Lafitte. He was a well-known slave smuggler, but was afraid of getting caught. He sets his base on the fittingly named island called Snake Island, just off the coast of Texas. So he's not really in Texas, so he's not really in Mexican territory. But he's not really on U.S. territory either. The Mexican government is going through its own revolution and is sparsely populated at that. Lafitte is essentially has free range. He's able to gain nearly 300 slaves and builds barracks that can hold up to 650 more. He would literally sell them off for $1 per pound. Okay. Back to James. James takes out a loan for $1,200 on credit, and when the payment is due, there is no payment, which suggests he has money issues. James offers to buy more slaves off of Lafitte, but at a discounted price, maybe for some of the sicker or the weaker ones. James and his brother Rezin would then use his father's land to get them into Louisiana, complete a 300-mile trip through the river on a two-day hike into a very secluded area into the interior of Louisiana. That is how they would get them in. The Bowie brothers would then turn their slaves in as smuggled, leaving out that they were actually the ones that smuggled them into the United States. The slaves went up for auction, and the brothers would get half of the auction price of the slave. The example given in, the, um, in Three Rows to the Alamo by William D. Davis says, quote, If a slave sold at auction for $1,000, the Bowie's had only really paid, would only get paid a net of $500, or half of the reward of what the slave sold for. Add that they paid $140 for the slave initially from Lafitte. Their total investment was now $640. But now, the slave now came with a clear and legal title to the slave. The buoys now had the ability to save them. So if they sold the slave again for $1,000, they would gain $360 on their investment. Everything would be fine. As long as nobody asked the buoys how they managed to get so many smuggled slaves into their possession. But just in case, because evil wins, Lafitte had just the right amount of connections to make the scheme work. In 1819, James and Rezin are able to sell 180 slaves. And by 1820, they had profited $65,000. Jesus. So they were... And they were in it for the money for sure. Yep. Just 
God, and no one said a word. How, man, you guys are good. Yeah. I don't become frustrated during a lot of research. This is just an evil plan. There's no... You're selling human beings off by the pound. You're getting a discount for the sicker and weaker ones. Force them on a march for $300 so that you can resale, resell them as a smuggled slave so you can then sell them again. Right. The, and they were Repeat the ones that. and you smuggled them in. And you're the one that smuggled them in. And who is going to believe the slave if the slave told them? Right. Exactly. I can't. It was incredibly frustrating to get through that. I, I can't imagine being that cold of a person right. to ignore other people and sell 180 of them in one year to make $65,000. I agree. James leaves the slave, the slave smuggling ring to focus on unclaimed land. Simply owning land could bring you in a lot of money in Louisiana in the 1820s. It was Spanish territory until the Louisiana Purchase. The newly acquired territory of Louisiana was about 90% public domain land. However, if you owned or bought land in Spanish Louisiana and had the deed from when you bought it, it would be honored by the United States and you would still have your property. You would still own a lot of that land. But for anyone willing to forge a document, you could start selling land that you had never owned nor paid for. The deed needed two witnesses, a seller and a buyer. Then you just needed to be signed by Spanish officials. If you bought off two witnesses and your forgery was good enough, you could pass it through the land office and the land would now be yours. More details on how this worked in a minute. James had actually been a victim of this exact scheme years before that he went to court over. He had purchased land on a forged deed. Bowie was outraged at the moment, but the light bulb went off in his head and he starts to scheme scheme, but this time in his favor. He dives head first into this scheme. He targets the area of Louisiana called Nacogdoches, which is known for its soil along the rivers on the bayous. Really good farmland that was high enough that it just didn't flood. He found the best land to sell himself. James creates fake identities to put name on the grants. The names had to be consistent with early French and Spanish settlers in Louisiana as they owned the territory in the time period. James creates fake identities as names on his grants. The names then had to be consistent with early French and Spanish settlers in Louisiana as they were the ones in the territory at the time that James supposedly bought the land. The fake identity that James gave birth to, some of the names included Antonio Baca, Francois Lequerc, Juan Bolger, and Pedro Jimenez, plus 20 other names. Bowie goes 50 years back and dates the deeds to the 1770s. The name, the name of the Spanish governors had to be real, so he probably had to pull up Wikipedia, wrote their names on the deeds, uh, and then gives himself very generous lands that he supposedly bought from the Spanish grants. The fake grants were then written by multiple secretaries of three different Spanish governors, supposedly until uh, supposedly in 1790. The grants had suspiciously similar handwriting and signature styles. 
the secretaries of the supposedly native Spanish speakers didn't include accent marks or tildes on their own names. Bowie just then need, needed to bribe the witnesses to sign and to confirm the sale. Or did he? He recycled the same names on his deeds from other land deals. For example, Antonio Vaca may have sold land to Bowie in one document, but he was listed as a witness on another land sale. The most common name James used as a witness? Take a guess. James? John Smith. Uh, yeah. Really dug deep for that one, didn't he? After the forgeries are complete, James took them to the land office in Mississippi. Bowie waits until the nearby deadline to submit all the forgeries at once, assuming that the clerk would be flooded with paperwork and would be more willing to approve them and simply move on. However, almost immediately, like hours within finding, filing, the clerk, a clerk named Wales, spots that there is obvious fraud going on here and assumes Bowie will bring more documents and simply sits on the paper and lets Bowie bring them more in. In another land office, the clerk immediately spots nine more claims that tie back to Bowie. He writes to his boss to see what action he can take, but the land scheme is so new, there are no laws on the books. It's going to have to take an act of Congress to be able to punish the land forgeries. For now, there is no other option but to submit, but to submit the papers as legitimate sales and hold off on paying Bowie as long as possible. Unaware that his forgeries had already been caught, Bowie continues to scheme to the tune of 150,000 acres over a number of years. That is roughly the size of Chicago. Or for international listeners, that is five times larger than the city of Paris. He then grows impatient on why he's not being paid for his money. Doing this, he writes... He befriends a man named Isaac Thomas, who has ties to the, to the Washington, Mississippi land office, and writes on Bowie's behalf. This partially works, and Bowie does get some of the money uh, that he has, but he continues to scheme. But this investigation is going to be on the background, really for the rest of his life and beyond. There gets to be so, this gets to be so notorious that eventually President Andrew Jackson demands an investigation into Bowie's claims. Dude is just, mm, wait, well, wait, I got some things to say about this guy. <laughs> He's coming off very mob bossy. He fits in right in with Capone and Bulger. He, mm. Well, it's just crazy. He just does one evil thing to the next. Admittedly, if he didn't do the uh, landslip, the, the, the smuggling of humans, the land slave could be fun. Not really. You're still an evil person. But the, th the phrase that kept going through my head was, if you're going to be a bear, be a grizzly. <laughs> and he died. And that's exactly what he he's not going to half-ass anything. He's diving in and he's going to do it. Right. And to hell with the consequences, that will be around. That's more land talk than I've ever wanted to do. So I'm sorry if somebody just fell asleep. Uh, just know, like I said, this is always going around in the background. I just kind of put everything up at the top, but no, this is all going. 
unaware that his fraud is up. Bowie figures out that he still needs to make more money in the short term um, until his completely legitimate land claims are now confirmed. It's not going swimmingly for Bowie, and he starts a small farm, but the crops fail during the winter. With no land he can legitimately sell, the bank refuses him a line of credit. He then is forced to move his family to Alexandria, possibly to start to find a new way of making money. In Alexandria, established family of the Wells and the Coonies have a feud that branch out to other families in the community. So they're really divided into two separate teams or factions. Accusations of vote fixing in the sheriff elections, denied bank loans, and of course just continuous fighting. Several members of the community engage in duels, fist fights, and had their uh, exchange gunfire. Bowie, for some reason, thinks he's able to run for Congress. That is largely unsuccessful, but he makes enemies with a man named Norris Wright. Wright could simply talk about Bowie's reputation, things that were largely true, but Bowie having a fiery temper was not re was ready to fight anyway. The final straw comes when Wright uh, possibly denies James a bank loan. Upon hearing the news of the bank loan, Bowie runs in and demands to know if Wright was talking behind his back. Wright's response to the accusation isn't in words, but instead he just pulls the pistol on Bowie. Bowie has just enough time to grab a chair, and what I'm assuming is to deflect the shot, gets the chair up fast enough to deflect it. A few moments go by, and Bowie raises the chair and hits Wright. Wright then fires a bullet into Bowie's left side. James drops the chair, but keeps charging and is able to take Wright to the ground and starts beating him without mercy with a bullet wound just in his side. With Wright pinned down, James goes for his pocket knife, but without the ability to use one hand as he's trying to keep Wright down, Bowie tries to unclasp the knife with his teeth. When James's friend realizes that there's about to be a murder, he tackles Bowie and collapses to the ground. But a still determined Bowie lunges at the right, lunges at right, and bites his hand so hard a tooth lodges into Wright's hand. <laughs> With blood pouring from his mouth, Bowie is taking upstairs. Wright is about to follow up, but figures that the bullet wound that he put into Bowie was mortal, and there was no use finishing him right now. In reality, the bullet had just left a bruise and a fractured rib, ultimately because the gun was either improperly loaded or some coins in Bowie's pocket may have deflected it. Regardless, Bowie can only think of the next time he can run into Wright, this time with a bigger knife. That is my transition into the Bowie knife. But first, what's your impressions of James Bowie and his fighting abilities? I just... Why is he so angry? I mean, he's good. Like he's They're a... not giving him money for his land. You would be angry. What has he done wrong? You mean the one he stole? Or try, is trying I mean, he hasn't stolen yet. Right. He's trying to steal. The theft hasn't happened. There's no law. Right, which is interesting. That's funny. I mean, he created something that needed laws. <laughs> Oh, he didn't originate it. Right, right, right. It happened to him, right? Yes, it happened to him originally, and then he thought, hmm. Well, if they're going to do it, I can do it. 
I'm going to do it better than them. His his mistake was probably doing so much. Or just have better for Yeah, too much and All his don't really use the same 20 names. Yeah, like it's it's almost like a fourth grader like signing their parents' signature. It's funny because it's like, wait, I can just imagine the clerk like, okay, this guy sold his land, but then witnessed this land, but then that guy witnessed this. It doesn't make sense. What? Yeah, who, what is, this is the same handwriting. He's putting the same little hearts above the eyes. I don't understand. <laughs> I, there's no way that matters. And then, yeah, we talked about him being the very devil in a fight. Uh, lodging your teeth into a man's hand that you're angry at because you got denied a bank loan. Jesus H. Christ. I mean, God dang this dude. It's so weird because it's like, I know, like I've heard of him and I just felt like he was, he's like considered a hero, but we'll see. The Bowie knife. If you're wondering, yes, it is that knife that is named after James Bowie. He isn't the one that designed it. It may have been his brother resin or more likely a blacksmith that the family used. It is a simple straight blade that is an inch and a half wide and nine inches long. A sharp edge on one side and adding a cross piece separating the handle from the blade. If you're picturing a hunting knife in your head, you are likely imagining the Bowie knife. Normally, James has it on him, but for whatever reason, he didn't have it in the fight with Norris Wright. If he would have, he probably wouldn't have needed, he wouldn't have needed to open the blade with his teeth, and he likely would have killed Wright on that day. While James is recovering, the Cooney and the Wells families continues their feud north of Matches, Mississippi, a sandbar on the Mississippi River, September 19, 1827. Two men, Samuel Wells and Thomas Maddox, challenge each other to a duel. Bowie comes along as Wells the second. Onlookers gather, and when Maddox's party comes in, Norris Wright is among one of his seconds. So Bowie is a second, Norris Wright is a second on opposing sides of a duel field. Again, they're not in the duel. I have a feeling they're going to be. When the shots are exchanged, neither man is hit. However, a bystander named Crane fired upon Cooney, who then fell to the ground. So not the seconds, someone from the crowd fired on him. Shots are exchanged, and then Bowie hits Crane in the leg. Bowie then calls out, Crane, you have shot me, and I will kill you if I can. Believing James was very capable, Crane starts to run away, finding that he has an empty gun. He ended up just throwing the pistol at Bowie that hits him in the head that knocks Bowie to his knees. What a great, what a great aim. I mean, it's a well shot. Uh, it's not going to matter. <laughs> As Bowie is getting up, he sees Wright, Norris Wright, taking aim at him. Before Wright can shoot, a man named Denny came up to Bowie and shouted at James for him to stop. Denny grabs Bowie by the lapel, just as Wright is firing. Bowie is hit in the left side of his chest. The bullet takes off Denny's left middle finger. The ball passes through Bowie's lung. Like an undead nightmare, James doesn't die, but pulls out his very large knife and chases Wright. <laughs> Bowie is then shot in the thigh. While Wright and Alfred Blanchard stab him in, quote, several places, Bowie is able to fight off the silly mortals and continues to charge. 
He grabs Wright by the collar and yells, Now, Major, you die. He then jabs his knife into his chest to, quote, twisting it to cut his heartstrings. Jeez, that is brutal. After a few more moments, the gunfire is over. The whole thing lasted about two minutes. Stabbed several times. Shot multiple times. Kept coming. And this doesn't even sound like it's a made-up tall story. Now, some of it, like, maybe he got stabbed once and it's several times, and they listed it several times, but he was shot through the lung, and he continues to charge. Takes on two men in the middle of a scurry, is, is cognitive enough to now say, now, Major, you die. And then that quote was from him, the twisting it to cut his art strength. Right. It was from Bowie. Like it was, was from quoted Bowie. as saying, I twisted it to cut his heart. That is what he said after, yes. So, Wright's dead. Yeah. Yeah, without your heartstrings. Um, I don't think there's much living. I can just imagine what he was like, like how I literally did everything to kill you. I think at this point, it's Jason coming out of the lake, and you're just dead. You just need to accept this fate. If he, if he touches you, you're dead. Yeah, if... This was destined to happen. I shot him twice. He's been stabbed multiple times. It's just my time. I can't fight this anymore. I had a good run. The papers report Bowie was about to die, but Bowie is to have said he was uh, happy that his enemies had a lot of powder that the bullets went right through him. He takes two months to recover initially, but the bullet to the lung bothers him for the rest of his life. Bowie is praised that even when in a fight that he doesn't have the advantage that he still wants to fight, which is untrue of a lot of the gunfighters we're going to cover. This is true. He never had the advantage. It didn't matter. Jim Bowie mad. Jim Bowie kill. The land claim fraud starts to close in on Bowie, and he continues to buy land without getting money from his previous land deals. He has more than $40,000 held up and $30,000 in debt. Bowie either refuses to pay them or... He simply is just not able to. Maybe thinking the jig is up, he starts to look towards Texas. And according to biography William C. Davis, quote, with little more to show that for a decade of energetic fraud. Bowie is not a stranger to Texas and Mexico politics. He had been on a trip across the border a couple years prior with the Long Expedition. On the trip, he meets a young woman named Ursula, someone who is about half his age. Not much is written about her, but the dude the two do seem to have a genuine love connection and the two become engaged and married in a short period of time. A heavy bonus is that Ursula comes from a wealthy family. I'm sure it had nothing to do. Yeah, it had nothing to do with his decision to marry her. Here, love. Her father demands that Bowie prove that the man is in good standing. He wanted definitive proof that his land holdings were legitimate. And well, that didn't exist. So Jim does what Jim does best other than stabbing a man and he forges some documents. They seem to be good enough for Ursula's father, and he allows Bowie permission to marry his daughter. So Bowie is settling in Texas. Now we're going to do just a little bit of background. Mexican territory is roughly half the the same size as the United States, but it doesn't have nearly the infrastructure, in part because of the revolution that they just went through. They had been the classic large territory governmental problem that had doomed the Roman Empire and really every other empire up to the date. 
They wonder how they can protect their borders when they have a sparsely populated country. To do so, they invite immigrants to help come populate Texas. The Mexican government passes laws that will allow men to come into the territory and claim large sects of lands for themselves with little commitment. The commitments are, first, you needed a letter of reference confirming you were in good standing, or you could forge one. Immigrants must embrace Catholicism and obey Mexican laws. You have to agree to pay $30 in four years, and the land you claim will not be taxed for six years. I'm going to guess Bowie skipped over this like he was reading the terms and condition. The following would have caught his attention. Immigrants could claim one league. One league is equal to 4,400 acres for grazing cattle for land, uh, for grazing land for cattle. They could also claim one labor of 177 acres for farming. They would then not be taxed again on that land for six years. Married men would be eligible to get one full league of 4,400 acres and one full labor of 177 acres of land. Single men would only get a quarter of that, so 1,100 acres. But if a single man married a Mexican woman, he would get another 1,100 acres. Now, we say the love match with Ursula was the thing. But I'm starting to suspect it may not have been lovey-dovey. There was one law that was ignored by the, by the immigrants. Mexico had banished slavery. Slaveholders brought in their slaves anyway. Mexico had other priorities, had other priorities to it and didn't enforce it. The practice becomes established and entrenched in Texas. Mexican President Bustamante notices that his plan to invite immigrants to populate the area is working really well, maybe too well. Maybe inviting Americans to keep the American government from taking the territory may not have been the best decision going forward. Bustamante and his government is based roughly off the U.S. Constitution. Mexico is going through the same growing pains America had through its revolution after its revolution with Britain. Bustamante then steps over what those in the U.S. would call a states' rights issue. He then bans any more Americans from coming into Texas, but leaves the borders open to European settlers. He then orders the soldiers to be garrisoned to help enforce Mexican law in Texas and to make sure that taxes were collected. And if there's one thing we know about Americans, they love being told they can't do something and they love paying their taxes. I, I was going to say that. Dang it, you took my joke. I was like, and we love paying taxes. We do. Thunderclap. James and Ursula settle near San Antonio. Bowie hears rumors that they're of rumored treasure of the last San Saba mine. Rumors of the mine being rich go back to 1753, but no one has ever actually found the silver it is said to be rich with. Bowie believes he is the man to find the silver. He takes the challenge that is actually in the middle of Apache territory and the Apache were known for defending their lands and becoming fierce fighters. Bowie had some of his fraudulent land scheme money ruled in his favor and recently had come in to some cash on hand. 
This will be the last of the major income that he gets from a scheme, as in less than a year later, the rest of his deeds were deemed fraudulent. James, his brother Resin, and 14 others head out to the Comanche Territory in November 1831 to find the lost San Saba mine. They travel for two weeks on 100 miles until they meet up with two Comanche men with the Mexican prisoner. One of the men on the expedition who actually knew the prisoner, while using translators, the natives claimed that they had a friendly intention and were only going to pass, pass them through. The next morning, however, that same Mexican prisoner rides up to the expedition and says that he had camped with the party with another 120 other indigenous men, and they had been tracking the, the expedition the entire time and had full intent of killing them. Bowie has the expedition ride for an abandoned fort near the mine to make a stand. They ride 25 miles only to find out that there was no fort to take protection under. But what they did have was a nearby river that didn't offer much cover either, but they have no options but to try to find another river and wait for the attack. They split their forces among the banks and hope that the logs and rocks will provide enough cover for when the attack comes. The next morning, they wake up alive, probably in a cold sweat, and start to pack up. They then see a band of natives less than 200 yards away. Resin and another man cautiously head up towards the band and attempting to talk with them. The warriors say Nanda Nana Boo Boo and mock them at their attempt at conversation and start opening up fire, missing Resin but striking the other man in the leg. James runs towards his brother and to help carry the injured man out of harm's way. The three are continuously fired upon until they get into cover, bullets going into Resin's hunting shirt. A number of the approximately 120 natives to the 16 men on the expedition. As they take cover, James sees the chief on horseback and calls out if anyone is loaded. When he receives a response, he tells them to fire at the man on the horse, which was the chief. The chief falls off his horse dead after the, after the shot, and the Texians are able to pick off a few warriors as they, tend, as they huddle together to defend their chief. Buying more time, the volley fire continue, but no ambush from the Apache actually happened. When other leader appears for the natives, Bowie himself takes aim and shoots and kills him. Again, the warriors cluster, and the Texans are able to pick a few off. They almost, the Apaches, then almost encircle the expedition. The expedition then moves under gunfire to a nearby thicket. They exchange fire for nearly two hours until the natives try to burn them out. The first attempt of setting the brush on fire fails, and the second forces the Texians to make a plan. They decide they will wait until the last possible moment to deal with the flames and just focus on the Apaches. Using the smoke uh, from the fire they can use to move locations as cover. The natives, for some reason, never ambush, and the fighting lasts in total for 10 hours. <sighs> That's a long battle. While the fire burns, the natives seem to believe that the expedition just isn't worth the casualty cost uh, that has already been inflicted on them, and the natives simply fall back. Bowie and his expedition believe that they killed 40, injured a number thir another 30, and only three Texians lay dead. Unable to risk another fight, they head home to San Antonio immediately, where, they, where word gets round of the expedition and Bowie's leadership and ability to fight. 
Boogie then spends the next year bouncing between Texas and visiting his brother in Louisiana, always looking for more land to claim and sell. In the background, down in Mexico City, Santa Ana comes power comes to power. He runs on a platform of reforms, but it's soon realized that he's more dictator than reformer. So far, the Texian army is led by a man named Stephen F. Austin. He is familiar with Bowie's name and for some reason is leery of bringing him into his inner circle because he knows he's James Bowie. There is a growing revolutionary spirit in Texas because, damn it, they want us to pay taxes now. Austin would like to keep with Texas and Mexico as Austin is an empresario and can get a ridiculous amount of land. I can't think of the figure off the top of my head, but it was over 100,000 acres of land because he could basically recruit others in. So it was to his betterment to just keep being a Mexican territory and just keep gaining the land. Austin, though, can read the room and realizes that a fight is going to be coming as the Mexican government start to enforce customs collection and build up the garrisons as promised under Bustamante. Austin asks Bowie to help control Nacogdoches, in part because he knows the area, and in part because he doesn't have anyone else to choose. The order comes a bit too late, as a Mexican colonel named Piedras was recently t- had recently taken over the town. 300 citizens of Nacogdoches demand Piedras give up the town, Bowie very easily recruits 20 men to go under his control. Piedras is in control of 200 men to Bowie's 20. Bowie then heads out to confront Piedras anyway. With the garrison in sight, Bowie sets up defenses. He then orders his men to spread out, and when they're ready, to fire at as many men as possible. This makes Piedras believe that he's facing a much larger force. They shoot through the night, and keep Piedras' men on high alert. And in the morning, Bowie demands their surrender. This works. Piedras surrenders, and from this point forward, Bowie is now on the short list of leaders for command as they take soldiers back to San Antonio. That story is strangely similar to Tecumseh's, only instead of outside of Fort Detroit creating his warriors around, he just spread them out as he kept shooting. It's really smart. I still hate him. Okay, we'll give him one. We'll give him one. I mean, the same Saba mine, too. That's good leadership. You're still a terrible person. I mean, that's for anything, though. I mean, you can be a good leader, but a horrible human being. So after the surrender of Piedras, the revolution for Texas is really starting to build up. Bowie meets Sam Houston just as a convention is called to discuss Texan independence. Bowie is unable to attend the conference because he catches cholera after the disease rushes through the area. It's severe enough that Bowie even sends away his family as a way as a precaution. However, they're unable to outrun the epidemic and Ursula, his wife, their child, and Ursula's family all die within the same week. Bowie is so busy recovering himself and also with the Texas Revolution, he doesn't hear of their deaths for nearly two months. As you would imagine, James starts drinking more heavily after he hears the news. He has always been an impeccable dresser, but has now become more careless in his dress and is continuing a downward spiral 
as he gets into more and more bar fights. In one particular bar fight, James asked his friend why he didn't help him out during a fight. His friend said simply that he thought James was in the wrong. Bowie replied that he knew he was in the wrong, but it would have been nice to have his friend backing him up together. And at this point, I don't know if James Bowie needs a hug or if he just needs a punch in the face because why are we starting random bar fights just for the fun of it? As Bowie continues to recover, Santa Ana is leading troops up north to crush the rebellion. Stephen F. Austin is even arrested for some time and becomes a huge rallying cry for the Texians as more and more join for the revolution. It appears that a fight is imminent. Bowie is elected colonel by his townspeople. You'll notice his townspeople and not the, con- or not the Texian Congress. He's able to raise his own soldiers. They raid a warehouse to gain ammunition and guns, and now they're ready for a fight. They then start heading towards the San Antonio River, where they meet up with a man named Fannin. Together, they are commanding 90 men as they follow the San Antonio River when they encounter a small group of Mexican scouts who retreat after a brief skirmish. They continue to march for about two miles from, the San, from San Antonio near a mission, Concepcion. They're at a point in the river where, they cur- where it curves into a small horseshoe shape, which is also covered by pecan trees. Bowie then receives orders from Stephen F. Austin that Bowie and Fannin need to retreat. But Bowie, being Bowie, ignores them. Bowie and Fannin instead send the courier back to Austin and give directions to Austin to come to Concepcion. To the great annoyance of Austin, back at the incoming battle, the Texian scouting party then divide into two camps. Fannin supervises about 49 men at the south end of the horseshoe. Bowie is camped on the northern part of the bend. Any Mexican army coming through from the north would be caught in the crossfire between the two. As they settle in for the evening, the Texians are surprised to see that a Mexican cannonball fired from one of the nearby church towers actually hit from beyond their camp, signaling that they were well within range of Mexican cannon fire. They're closer than they thought. Hoping to neutralize the Texian forts, the Mexicans plan an attack at Concepcion before the remainder of the Texas army arrives. And on the early morning of October 28th, around 6 a.m., 275 Mexican soldiers with two cannon approach, but are delayed by a thick fog for nearly two hours. So sneaking, not really in the cards anymore. When the fog lifts enough for the Mexicans to march, they do so and eventually open fire on the Texian lines. The Texians are in a really good defendable position. They're surrounded by trees, which eliminates the Mexican cavalry from engaging in the battle. So the, the Texians are kind of on the bank of the river, so they can kind of stay up on the bank and basically pop their head up, take a shot, pop on, like slide down um, the bank, reload, pop up and do so. They also have these trees that cavalry charges do really well in an open battlefield, but if they have to navigate around horses, they're just not that, not that effective. So to have to be able to eliminate a cavalry when you don't have one, it's a pretty good position just to take out an entire section of the Mexican army that they're not able to use. Is Austin going to, is 
I, I know he was mad, but is he going to meet up with them then? I think he kind of has to, because if there's a battle and he received word that people would be like they were going to be attacked and he doesn't respond. So, yes, Austin is on his way. He's probably just like doing that angry stomp a toddler does as they're coming through. He's like, fall back. No. All right. I'll come. Yeah. Son of a. (laughs) Now, I'm not in the military, so. I would like to think that if I am the superior and I am giving an order for someone to retreat and they simply say, no, but here's where I am. Come to me. Mm. Well, he really wasn't in the the military, though, right? I mean, he was just nominated by the people or whatever. So technically, I mean, I guess that he's going to save a bunch of civilians, right? Correct. Um, so think of them more as militia. So they're they're part of the army because the Texians, they need people uh, or else they're uh, they have no one to fight. They're not they're not going to win the revolution. Um, Also, Austin is pretty tedious on wanting a revolution because Austin is in a pretty good spot right now. Uh, If you remember earlier, he can essentially just have he can just invite people in and they can claim land and he gets a bunch of money. He's in good standing. He wants everything to be a status quo, at least for now. Right. Now, he did just get arrested. So obviously um, the gears are turning for him and he is kind of the leader of the com- of, of the command or of the Texian. He's kind of the face of the Texian army right now. Um, so, yes, Bowie is there, but think him more as militia rather than just like this renegade um, outside. Right? He's not Batman. He's not Texas Batman. OK, I was thinking more like the Punisher, but. Batman works too. No, let's go with Punisher because Batman's my favorite superhero and I don't want to tarnish Batman with, with James Bowie. Right. Being outnumbered, the Texans also have an edge in weaponry. Texas long rifles were better quality and can hit from a range of about 200 yards. By comparison, Mexican muskets could only do a range of about 70. In fact, during the battle, the Texans actually have Mexican musket balls hit their uniform and bounce off, causing little damage other than a bruise. The 90 Texians and 275 Mexicans trade out trade fire for two hours as the fog begins to fully lift. At that point, 50 Mexican infantrymen move in to surround the Texians. Seeing their approach, Bowie is said to have shouted to his men, keep under cover, boys, and reserve your fire, for we haven't had a man to spare. As they move closer, at 300 yards, the Mexican infantry form a line with a cannon in the middle. They begin a fire as they advance towards the Texian positions, to little effect as the volley actually fire fly over the lives of the Texians, but actually provide snack time for the Texian soldiers because the, the fire actually hits pecan trees that the soldiers were using for cover. One soldier would, wrote, would write, Grape shot and canister trashed through the pecan trees overhead, raining down a shower of ripe nuts down upon us. I saw men picking them up and eating them as if with little concern, as if they were being shaken down by a norther. Snack time. Who doesn't want snack time in the middle of their battle? That's hilarious. Oh, sh- well, it's raining down. Okay. Yeah, let's do this. It makes me want to like, it's how intimidated were they of this Mexican forces? If they're literally like, their bullets are bouncing off of them. And now they're like, ooh, pecans. I want yeah. some. 
I bet after the after the bullets uh, were bouncing off them, they're just like, um, yeah, I'm not scared anymore. Yeah, I think we're I think we're gonna do all right, guys. There's a lot of them, but I'm Superman. I can take a bullet. Can you imagine just getting out like, ah, oh, what was that? <laughs> just got a little bruise. Like, ah, oh, what in the world? It's a bullet. I'm invincible. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I can do no wrong. And James Bowie is just that. Yeah, you didn't realize bullets don't cause mortals any damage. What do you mean? Bullets are supposed to hurt. After the battle in his official report, Bowie remarked that the discharge from the army was a continuous blaze of fire, whilst that from our lines was more slowly delivered, but with good aim and deadly effect. Essentially, the Mexicans could beat them on the manpower, but the Texas, with Texians with their long rifles and their delicious pecans were able to be more effective hitting the, the Texian army or the Mexican army. Right. I mean, they could take them out what, one at a time if they wanted. Yeah. And they had they had time to reload like they're in a good position, like because they're only really exposing their heads to fire and then they can drop down the bank, reload and then, you know, do another volley. Well, the Mexican army is kind of in a prairie area. So like they're in an open field. So it's not it's not the best position to uh to be in for them they just have the manpower to do it and they have artillery and supposedly they have cavalry they should be able to walk in and just take it in an attempt to break the line mexican officers then charged the texians on the south side of the horseshoe bend where fannin was bowie sends reinforcements and as the reinforcements reach the mexican infantry falls back leaving the cannon about 100 100 yards from the texian army and the Texians now take aim at the cannon. In a similar strategy to San Saba, as in when the Native American chief came in, like Bowie said to take aim at the at the chief, and then they did, the chief fell, and then everyone would gather around the, the chief to pick him up and like to remove him from the battle, and then they would pick off Native Americans from there, if you remember that from a little bit earlier. It's the same strategy with the cannon. Whenever whoever goes towards that cannon is now just going to be aimed at and picked off. The Texians take aim and kill three sets of gunners who were trying to protect the cannon, and the cannon is soon left abandoned. The Mexicans called for a retreat, falling back behind Texian rifle range. The Mexican cavalry now is able to come in and retrieve wounded men and an attempt to go for the cannon. But as the cavalry approach, Bowie himself leads a charge onto the prairie, and the Texians quickly capture the cannon, turning it around the fleeing Mexican soldiers, and thus ending the battle. After 30 minutes of fighting, the Battle of Concepcion was ever was over, and the Texas Revolution just saw its first major battle. And then Stephen F. Austin showed up with his army. About an hour later. They're all just running on the field. Ah! They're all just sitting there eating them pecans. Oh, that would be great. They're like, yeah, we're ready. Like war, full war paint, everything. And they just see everyone like laying down, arms behind their head. Right. Picking the grass like bored. What's going on, guys? Oh, <laughs> hi. Do you want a pecan? It sounds like the the Mexican army they were facing weren't very um good at their jobs, huh? Uh, I think well supplied is probably the term. And I mean, yes, 
I think Mexico just went through its own revolution and it's going to kind of continue throughout the rest of the century. Um, the Mexico does not have nearly the infrastructure that the United States have. So <clears throat> even just the ability to make musket balls, um, America's kind of past its revolution period where now they can start focusing on like industry and econ uh, economy to where the Mexican government is just worried about not being overthrown this month. Right. right. Like, not being taken over again and again. Um, and they also have a huge territory. I mean, it's still what we consider Mexico today, plus Texas, plus New Mexico, plus, plus, plus. It's a huge area. It's a reason they invited the Americans in right. um, to their border so they could populate the area so the Americans couldn't take it over. Santa Ana then comes in and just puts a whole new wrench into it, and he takes all the power. So over the next couple of months are filled with political infighting. Long story short, Bowie and Sam Houston both sour on Stephen F. Austin and Austin's hesitancy to attack. When a vote is held 44 to 3 in favor of Austin and therefore in favor of not attacking, Bowie, under protest, steps away from the army. Only for a short time because Bowie, cough, cough, only leaves the army for a couple of weeks and then is back in San Antonio. But it's how tedious on just how official James is as part of the army. When word of the Mexicans had a pack train to unload the supplies, James, cough, cough, and 30 Mexican and 30 horsemen ride out to check it. Bowie met the freight train and charged. They fought off several assaults by the Mexican infantry, and the Mexicans retired with a loss of 60 men. As the train is loaded with bales of grass and garrison for livestock in the garrison, the clash is called the bar fight. And yes, there is a lot more to that. Uh, I just thought we were just got done with the Battle of Concepcion, so I wanted to kind of limit that. Um, the grass fight is is a, a pretty big deal in the Texas Revolution. I just very briefly skimmed it over. Bowie receives a letter from Houston dated on December 17th, suggesting a campaign against Motomoros. The expedition itself is approved, but the issue of command is muddled by political rivalry between the Governor Smith and the council, both of whom rejected Bowie, and Houston now has to find another assignment for Bowie. That assignment was to go to a small mission in San Antonio known as the Alamo. On January 19, 1836, Bowie, cough, cough, arrived at the Alamo with a detachment of 30 men. He carried orders from Houston to actually demolish the fortifications and to bring supplies elsewhere. An issue arises between Bowie's men and the commanding officer of the fort, William Barrett Travis. Bowie's men, cough, cough, will not fight with anyone other than James, but Travis is the official commander of the Alamo. We'll get more into this into Travis's episode, but Travis has to hold an election just to keep the men in camp. The vote is held, and Bowie ends up winning co-commandership of the garrison. Bowie, cough, cough, pulls a Bowie and celebrates by getting drunk. But not only while he's drunk, he needs to celebrate by taking out prisoners and parading them around the garrison while the soldiers mock them. That's pretty mean. Mean. And I think it's also now becoming very clear why people are so hesitant to give him a command of anything. 
I don't think he really understood why nobody trusts him. People won't give him land anymore. They're not giving him command of soldiers. He seems somebody very self-oblivious. On February 13th, Bowie, cough, cough, and Travis work out a compromise, giving Travis command of the regulars and Bowie command of the volunteers. Both men have joint authority over the garrison, over the orders, and over the correspondence. That always goes so well. Let me go again. Both men have joint authority over the garrison, the orders, and the correspondence. Ten days later, Bowie and Travis learned that some 1,500 Mexican cavalrymen were advancing on the Alamo. Travis and Bowie then dispatch asking for help. To their surprise, hours after sending the letter for asking for help, the Mexicans march into San Antonio and request a parlay. And without consulting Travis, Bowie asked and received the terms. Now, the terms don't matter. The terms are very simple. You're going to surrender right now. Bowie, the man with joint command over correspondences, sends back his answers saying he rejects them. Just opens the paper and it just goes, nah. Nope. I think he, uh, I'd like to think he like crumpled up the paper, ate it, and then like spitballed it back to them while Travis is just in the back like. No, it was one of those like, uh, it was one of those like love letters, you know, open it up, surrender, check yes, no. <laughs> and then, and then that's why they got mad because they, when he, um, when the Mexican army opened up, there was a, he wrote a third box that was like, never, you know, broke never. Yeah, broke then he heart. Drew- he drew a picture of a stick figure holding a sword. Never. <laughs> no, it's like, come at me, bro. <laughs> no, he's just saying that at the top of the fort, like puffing his chest, like, what? What you going to do? Yeah. What? I mean, maybe he was so, like, maybe he had such a big head from the Battle of Concepcion. I mean, the Battle of Concepcion, the sandbar fight, uh, San Saba. <laughs> he's, right. This ego has been building uh, really since he human trafficked human beings to the tune of $65,000. Because that's what terrible people do. I truly do. Okay, so Bowie rejects the orders. Uh, The next day on February 24th, Bowie, cough, cough, then collapses, ending his participation in the commanding of the garrison, most likely from an advanced case of tuberculosis. He was confined to his cot for the rest of the siege, and urged his volunteers to follow Travis. He was occasionally carried outside to visit his men. But for all intents and purposes, James Bowie's last uh, major contribution to the Alamo was rejecting the, the Mexican terms. Was causing it. <laughs> well, I think it was going to happen anyway, so, like, did well, it really matter? Surrendered. I don't think they were going to surrender. There's a lot of pride in that. Right. So I I, here's the thing. I think it didn't matter who sent the correspondences back, whether it was Bowie or Travis or together. So maybe we're, maybe I'm overblowing that a little bit. But if you're going to take co-commandership and then just do stuff on your own anyway, including getting drunk uh, and parading soldiers around to embarrass them, and then also just responding back without consulting to Travis, not not great so anyway bowie now sick 
advanced tuberculosis most likely there was a rumor or some historians thought he was actually taken out from trying to place a cannon and it ended up just falling over but i mean james Bowie is made out of steel so that obviously wouldn't even affect him he'd laugh at that he probably just jumped off himself he'd do a cannonball into dirt onto concrete yeah i was testing out the cannon so he said shoot me <laughs> <laughs> yes it worked. <laughs> was it like those monk like the monks where they could just continually getting kicked in the in the groin you can't feel yeah. pain it was just that but with cannon fire <laughs> that's how he worked his core yep it works yeah okay next person up who wants to try <sighs> on march 6th the mexicans marched before dawn where all 188 defenders of the alamo perished Bowie was found laying on his cot on the south side. He had been shot, quote, several times in the head. Dang. He didn't even fight. Yeah, he didn't even have active participation in the Alamo because he was dying of tuberculosis. Take that, Norris Wright. (laughs) No human could kill David Bowie. Just like the War of the Worlds, it took the germs. (laughs) oh and by the way it takes over 50 years to clear up the confusion of bowie's louisiana land claims after he died after he died (laughs) oh my god that mess was still going on all right now i think we need to eat we need to rank this evil no good despicable man i wonder how he's going to do first round are you satisfied? This is our biography round. We will be giving out points from negative 10 to positive 10 based on how we think he did. And I think this is really the story of two parts. The first half is absolutely horrible. And the second half is okay, I guess. It has some good moments in it, but it's really soured by that first part. Yeah, and it's just weird that they... um I don't know. You never see someone's early life before, like what they're known for. And since I guess he was, he's known for the Alamo, everyone considers him this, you know, they, I mean, they held the Alamo, you know, when in reality it's his early life was not good. No. And I wonder if you take out the slave smuggling and you can't, and we won't, I can forgive the land scheme. Because whatever it's, if anything, I would probably be giving him some clever points if he wasn't so real, if he wasn't so god awful at his forgeries. Right. The scheme itself, he didn't originate, but I can. There's, I could give some props. He was definitely onto something when he was doing it. He just executed probably the worst you can execute. He took too big of a he took too big of a slice of pie with his land schemes, and then was angry that nobody gave him his land claims because it was like. Yeah, okay. He definitely probably would have got away with it if he did maybe two, three. But, like, when you do, what was it, over 20, right? You know, if not that I'm an evil genius, but if I was going to run that same scheme, I'm going to pick, I don't know, two other human beings with different handwritings, and they can also be, be people and signatures. Also, don't claim 150,000, 150 acres of land in the modern day size of Chicago. You might have a suspicion because your family doesn't have a name. Where did you come against all of this money? We would have heard of you before if you actually had all of this money. 
it's so weird and and here's the thing too like some of our figures have owned slaves and everything but it's not that they owned it he smuggled them and then sold them again yes which is worse i mean it's about as worse as you can get slavery itself is the worst thing the united states has ever done slay smuggling human trafficking right it's terrible it's terrible I don't know where it is on the on how bad it is, but it's equal to and greater than worse than slavery. One hundred percent. And especially to pick off the weak ones for a discounted price, so you could march them three hundred miles on a prob on a death march. Mm-hmm. I how? Agree. 180 people. He made $65,000. And back then, that is an absorbent amount of money. That is a lot of money. And he blew through it. And then he just went for land deals. Like, I, as soon, I was so disgusted with the man after the first quarter of looking into him. I almost didn't care. My mind was set. You take that part out. Let's talk about the other things. Jesus Christ, am I never going to pick a fight with James Bowie? Right. (laughs) (laughs) The man will not die. It took germs. Right. He had to be killed. Stabbed multiple times, shot multiple times. He had to be killed from the inside. (laughs) You can't take him. I mean, yeah, you can't take him out on the outside. You got to go in. Well, I mean, technically, he was dead already because of tuberculosis. Like, he was going to die. But, I mean, he did get, you know, shot in the face quite a bit. I mean, he wasn't shot in the face. He was shot in the lung, though. That can't be pleasant. No, at the end, when they, like, were identifying the body, he was shot in the face multiple times. Yeah, that is true. I wonder if, I mean, it says he was shot, quote, multiple times. Normally, one bullet to the head will do the job. I wonder if he just didn't keep charging. No mortal human would kill him. But he was still getting up. He is one hockey mask away from being Jason. If he had long fingernails, I think he's Freddy Krueger. In in your dreams, right? He's horrifying. Also, he would fit right in. I can't, I, he is so perfect for the 1920s mobster era. Land schemes, murders. Yeah. Um, Human trafficking. I mean, what's your uh, rank going to be? I mean, his story. So our our ultimate baddie right now is Jesse James. We both gave him a negative nine. I'm going to save a lot of the punishment of the slave smuggling uh, for the next round. But he he does have some good stuff. He was a good military mind. He made a professional he made a general or a lieutenant surrender with 20 men. We gave Tecumseh huge praise for that. For when he essentially did a similar tactic. 
he also, I mean, the San Saba mine, that was him money chasing. He put himself in that situation that he was well aware was that dangerous of a situation. He still handled himself well. He still came out to help a man who had been shot. That's all good. He then married a woman that that William Davis said was for love. Um, I think there's more than enough evidence to point of that Ursula was more land acreage than a love connection. I'm really conflicted with this particular. It's going negative because I'm not going to get over the slave smuggling. Uh, the land scheme, I would probably give positive points because that's a crime. That's a victimless crime unless you're the one that got the land deeds. I'm going to go. I'm going to go negative six. six. You're doing the same thing? Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say negative six, too. I mean, we did at the same time, right? Oh, look at us. Jinx, you owe me a beer. <laughs> Coming at you. Which, by the way, nobody can see this because this is an, an audio podcast, but I had to drink the strongest beer I had to get through this episode. It was very depressing. Very depressing, man. Next round where we can smoke this mother... Be sure you are right, and then go ahead. This is our morality round. Negative 10 to positive 10. I'm going to do, I think, a negative 10. You are going 10. I am very tempted. I I wasn't, even at the beginning of the week, I didn't think I would go negative 10 because I still want to save that for one particular human being. But I'm completely fine sharing a negative 10 um, with James Bowie. You bad mamma jamma miserable human being next round nothing else to cover negative 20 to hell with the consequences this is our crazy or clever round matt and i are going to hand out points between negative 10 and positive 10 if we think he was crazy or if he was clever i'm really conflicted in this one yeah what was he was he crazy was he clever i don't think he was that clever because he didn't get his land deals like he and he copied that I think that's outright crazy points to think he'd get away with it. Right. Um, I think I'm going to do... So what I do want to say, in his clever, uh, he was good in battle. If you were looking strictly at his military career, it's not bad. Because he did, like, again, during San Saba, when someone was shot, he did put himself in the line of fire to bring him back. During the Battle of Concepcion, he was able to organize fighters in order to fight up, to fight them off. He was able to gain loyalty from his troops and from his recruits because he was a good fighter. And also, I don't know if this is good or bad, he got stabbed several times in one fight and still killed a guy. <laughs> That's pretty crazy. I don't even know if crazy covers it. That's insane. Where does that even rank? Like, it's not the. I, I think you need to save the negative ten, but like Jesus Christ! No, I wouldn't say that. Possessed. I was. I was going to do like negative seven. You did give Jesse James negative negative eight. Yeah, I think that's yeah. that's. See, I just don't think he was that crazy though, because crazy to me, like there was a Roman emperor that literally thought he was a chicken. If I remember <laughs> right, like that's. That's crazy. He was very much of sound mind. If anything, I think he's clever. So, like, I I can understand how you want to, to score him 
as negative seven. I think that's a legitimate score. I just don't think he was dumb. I or I don't think he was crazy at all. Other than he had, he was he again. If you're going to be a bear, be a grizzly, right? I just don't think he thought of consequences, which is ironic for this round. <laughs> I'm going to go negative, but I think I'm only going to go like negative two. I don't think he's that crazy. If anything, I think he's clever. Yeah, I just think I don't know. I don't think he's. I don't know. I don't think he's. I don't think he's clever. Yeah, that's fair. I I'm I'm not going to give him positive points because f this guy. <laughs> okay. Score recap. In are you satisfied? He had negative twelve, and be sure you are right. Negative twenty. Hell with the consequences. Negative nine. That brings his total score to negative forty-one. So from here on out, Matt and I are going to continue to still hand out scores between zero and ten. Only we're going to continue to subtract because we're not going to give positive points to this man. The next round draw. How screwed are we in a duel with James Bowie? I think we're very screwed. We're not. We're in trouble. <laughs> you gave Jesse James as their only other threat. You gave Jesse James a negative eight. I gave him negative nine. I think I'm going to do negative nine. You are? Huh? This dude's not dying. I mean, do I, what gun, what gun do I have? Do I, I have a multiple repeating? No, you have. <laughs> if a, I have one shot, shot. <laughs> if I have a Tommy gun, if I have an Uzi, I'm Maybe. feeling I might, I might be able to stop him right. <laughs> by the end of the clip. I just. Does he does he only get a knife? Does it matter he only gets a knife? He's like the John Wick, right? I, or he's an evil John Wick. I'm sorry. I've never seen John. I'm sorry. The last Keanu Reeves movie I watched was Hardball, and I liked that a whole lot. Oh, that's a great movie. It is good. I really liked it. Okay. So you you gave him a what? A negative, I think I said eight, right? I don't remember. It's negative eight now. Somebody will correct us. I gave Jesse a negative nine. I am going to, I'm going to go negative seven. Yeah, I think negative seven is fine. That is negative 15. Next round, legacy. How well known is he? Again, we're going to give the score out from zero to 10, and we're going to subtract however many points. What is his legacy? Um, I think he's like Crockett. He's kind of, he's pretty well known. I mean, shoot, there's a knife after him, right? Mm. The Bowie knife. That's true. Yep. Um, what did I give uh, Crockett? You gave Crockett a six. six. Yeah, I think I'm going to go seven. I think he's a little more well known. What made for, well, nobody's going to make a movie on James Bowie unless it's from <laughs> Camp Crystal Unless Lake. it's very, unless it's very, uh, falsified. I mean, I mean, they they did make a love story out of Jesse James, so you never know. Have you watched it? No, we're not. This isn't about Jesse James. Never mind. I'm very curious. Anyone who has watched the assassination of Jesse James and listened to our episode, if you now can watch the movie with Brad Pitt and think of Jesse in the same light, so you are at negative seven for legacy. I don't think he's that well known, but you did kind of sway me with the knife, because if you know if you know his name, it's the Bowie knife. If you know him for a second thing, Alamo. it's the Alamo. Alamo. 
the third thing would be the sandbar fight, which he cut a man's heart. With a, mm. So I'm not going to be as generous as a seven, although I don't think that's a bad score because he is known for that knife. In the positive, hmm, who can I compare him to? Is his name as big as Calamity Jane? I don't think so. Is his name as big as Crockett? I don't think so. Is his name as big as Daniel Boone? That might... I still think Daniel Boone's a bigger name, and I gave Daniel a four. I think I'm going to go negative four. I think that's going to be my deciding answer. That brings his total score for Legacy as 11. Next round. Death bonus. He died at the Alamo. Uh, we're going to be adding points from zero to two as bonus points. Uh, if we think he had a cool death story. Died at the Alamo. We gave Davy Crockett. I David think he Crockett died terribly. In a cot. We don't really have reports. We do, but really don't have that much on other than he was laying in bed and he was shot multiple times. Right. In the face, which is fitting. I feel no mercy. For James Bowie, I'm going to say zero. I'm going to go 0.5 because yes, it does see it seems very anticlimactic that he does all of this fighting. As far as we know, he could have just marched out to Santa Ana and just snapped his neck with one arm, and then Texas would have won his revolution. The man would not be killed unless he was killed from the inside. So, I'm going to go negative 0.5 because it was in the Alamo. That's well known. And it's fine. It's just a bonus point. Okay, next round. Counting coup. Confirmed-ish kills. And we're going to divide that number by 10. Uh, he was a soldier. So I think we can give him the token uh, 10 for the one point. Other than that, I can think of Norris Wright. Um, I am tempted to give him the fate of 180 enslaved people that he sold, but that's probably breaking the rules too much. So I think 11 is probably the number I'm going to put in here. So 1.1? 1.1. That brings James's total score to negative 68.6. He's a baddie. Don't sell people. Our ultimate baddie right now is Jesse James. He's at 87.9. Uh, he is now in second place as far as our baddies go at negative 68.6. Uh, on the good side at 70 points, just to give you an idea, our points leader of positive is Tecumseh at 70. And then we gave just uh, Billy the Kid 68.1. So that's where he stands for selling people. And now... We need to flip a coin to see whose team he's on. See whose team he's on. Um, if he's competitive, I like whosever chances he's on. I think he's worth drafting. Mm, but I'm not going to feel good about it if he's on my team. <laughs> I will actually. I'm not even going to flip this coin. Would you like to draft? I will draft him if you don't. But I want to give you the first right of refusal. Uh, I'll take him. I'll take him. You will take him. Why are you taking him? I feel like he is 
gonna go far on name recognition and i mean i his story is interesting it's not like it's completely boring fall asleep you know i mean he did horrible things but overall like he still did things yes he is interesting he is worth talking about right i just wish he didn't smuggle it, it all comes down to this makes slave smuggling doesn't it yeah i mean i mean he was a slave owner it's one thing i i can I, i'm not gonna look the other way if you're because like if you're a slave owner you're still a miserable human being but that really is the most of his negative points so if somebody wants to come at us for strictly judging him based on that i don't care he was a miserable human being and he was set by that by the time he was 25 years old so I feel good behind it. I think he is worth having on a team. Um, just to give a recap on the teams, because we haven't done that in a while. Matt's team is Wild Bill Hickok, Calamity Jane, Jesse James, and James Bowie. Bowie. My team is Billy the Kid, Daniel Boone, Tecumseh, and David Crockett. Uh, our single free agent is Tenskwatawa, and that... Is James Bowie. If you like what you heard today, go ahead and give us a like and subscribe and leave us a review. We would love that. We love hearing from you. Um, we do have an email, ranking76pod at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at ranking76podcast. And we do have a Facebook group, Ranking76, the American West. Go ahead and follow that group. Again, uh, we appreciate you listening. I'm Eric. And I'm Matt. And we will see you next time.